Army veteran Anthony DeToto from 1836 Veterans talks about networking and creating collisions with veterans and veteran business owners. Coming up next on Veteran on the Move. Welcome to Veteran on the Move. If you're a veteran in transition, an entrepreneur wannabe, or someone still stuck in that J-O-B trying to escape, this podcast is dedicated to your success. And now, your host, Joe Crane. This episode is brought to you by Bench Bookkeeping. If you're an entrepreneur, the last thing you want to mess with is bookkeeping. But it is a necessary evil in this world of entrepreneurship. Bench Bookkeeping Relieve that huge burden for me and my business because Bench puts bookkeeping on autopilot. To check out Bench and get one month free of bookkeeping and take that task off your desk, go to veteranonthemove.com slash bench. All right, we're talking with Army veteran Anthony DeToto from 1836 Veterans. Anthony, thanks for being here today. Before we get to talking about business and entrepreneurship, take us back and tell us what you did in the Army. Sure. So two platoon commands and a company command as a first lieutenant. Um, two in, those two platoon commands were in Germany. The company command was down in Kuwait cleaning up minefields, tail end of the first Gulf War. Uh, then I transitioned out uh, and worked in the National Guard and Reserve in Connecticut and then in Ohio and eventually in Chicago. So first part of my service was concluded active duty in 94 uh, reserves and National Guard 99. And then I just re-upped for my second stint as a civilian aide to the Secretary of the Army. Not something that Navy, Marines, or Air Force have, but I was the 100th appointed. And, um, it's a three-star equivalent for protocol purposes. And the duties are, I meet a flag drape coffin at Ellington Field on behalf of the Secretary along with their family mm. as the, the, the primary. The second would be to help recruiting command. Houston, Texas is number one Marine and Army recruiting command in the country. We far outkick our coverage that way, helping folks with transition issues. Uh, how, how are they going to land well? So as we recruit the Army of the future, where they're more interested in uh, driving a computer and running algorithms and machine learning to make sure that the traditional infantrymen and uh, cannon cockers are landing well and integrating out into society. And then Really, we've been at war for 18 years. The last part of that job continues to be just telling the story. Yeah. Well, that sounds like you're heavily involved in a lot of the veteran activities. You get your finger on the pulse. And you, you talk about transition. On, on the civilian side of things, you, you kind of transition in and out, on and off active, in, in and out of reserves um, as far as the military side. But what was, what was your transition like on the civilian side while you are going through all that? Yeah, you know, I, I went to a little school upstate about 60 miles north of New York City called West Point, founded in 1802. <laughs> I like to say that makes it 217 years of history unhampered by progress, right? <laughs> They've got a way of doing something. They've kind of stuck with it. Yeah. And when I got out, we have an alumni dinner every April, and I went. To, there was one in New York on the second weekend of March and in Connecticut on the third and up in Boston on the fourth, and I went to all three and I gave the same sort of stump speech that as the youngest graduate in the room, I knew that the, my responsibility was to make sure that my talk was short and succinct. And the only other responsibility was to pay attention to the first one, that it was short and succinct. And so I figured I could talk about education, training, or character building. And I figured the latter, character building, and day one at West Point, 
And I just explained that, hey, look, they marched us down to Eisenhower Hall. They seated us with my 1,158 other new cadets, and they asked the following groups of people to stand up. All those of you that were valedictorian in your high school, and more than 100 stood, and all those of you were captain of varsity athletic team, and 400 more stood, and all those of you were president of your senior class in high school, another 158 stood. And I figured at that point, the only question left was, Anthony DeToto, would you like to stand up? <laughs> um, and... and and, and it got a similar kind of response and people giggled and people came up to me and said, you know, I was that guy sitting down and we always feel like we're, we're not good enough at that threshold, whether it's our gunny sergeant, our drill sergeant as a plebe, as a brand new lieutenant and getting out and transitioning. I think I harkened back. I had 258 Bangladeshis and Pakistanis working for me as a denture servants to the Kuwaitis. And then I pivoted into an office that looked like the comic strip Dilbert where 15 people thought I worked for them. And I just was at this crisis where I was thinking, Hey, you know, I don't know what I really want to do next, but I'm pretty sure it's not going to have as much purpose as what I just did. Yeah. That, that's a, resa- a resounding reality check when, when you get out and you're whatever civilian job you land in, even if it's, you know, one of the cool and few cool ones that's out there, it's still like, what you talked about where you had 258 foreign nationals working for you, essentially there's just nothing significant. Some, so many of the jobs you do in the civilian sector are just not going to feel as significant as what you did in the military. There's just no getting around it. I agree. And you know, when I was having the conversation with my battalion commander at the time who left eight branch qualified captains back in Bamberg, Germany, and took me down with him because that was the known quantity, even though I wasn't, branch certified yet. I had not been the advanced course and I got a one black block for a combat command. I was going to wind up in a staff job for the next 10 to 15 years <laughs> before I could do what, you know, what I eventually do his job. And he said, you know, you can have my job in like 15 to 18 years. And I said, yes, sir. I, uh, I realized that and I appreciate the opportunity. <laughs> um, and I just, for me, it was, I wanted to touch and impact a wider swath of people sooner. And um, so that, and it took a, I'm not saying that I transitioned very well in retrospect, we can all Monday morning quarterback. It's taking me this long to even put words around that. Oh yeah. So, um, so eventually you found your way into the banking industry, right? I did. I did. I, and part of that was, it was a circuitous path. It wasn't necessarily a straight line. What I did was at each of those alumni dinners that I went to, and I'm telling you, you know, it's nice to be in one of those old boy networks that's powerful, not as negative stigmatisms today with it, but where these are people that walk some of the same ground. And so therefore it was easier to have these conversations with them because we had, we had crossed the same path. Um, and one of the points that I made was, you know, look, there is, um, there's a lot ahead of me that I don't understand. And I look, I look for some guidance from you. So approaching it with some humility went a long way. And I sat with rookie mayor, Rudy Giuliani. I sat with Buddy Buca. I sat with Hal Moore from when we were soldiers and young. Mm-hmm. I sat with Mike Daly, who was a 43 X grad. Um, so three of them are medal of honor winners and they all opened up their proverbial Rolodex. And my promise to them. And one of the reasons what's inspired what I try to do today is, they all helped me when there was nothing in it for them. And all I could do was make the promise that when I was given the opportunity, I tried to help others that were in a similar position. Yeah, that's awesome. You know, um, 
we, we do talk about, you know, networking and, and mentorship quite a bit on the show. And I mean, that's a perfect example. Um, people often wonder, you know, how do you network or how do you find men- mentors? And, you know, really you went and sought them out and, and you were willing to receive and receive in a, re- in a respectful, um, tactful way. And that's, that was, you know, all they needed. I mean, there, there's so many, so many great potential mentors out there and people that, um, and, you know, being older now, um, I, I can see it from their perspective. It's, there's nothing more satisfying than seeing a younger person come in with eyes wide open saying, teach me, I want to know, what do I need to know? I, I value what you have to say. There's nothing more, um, you know, I'm almost invigorating to somebody that's older that does have something to teach and something to give back, knowing that they've got uh, somebody that's willing to receive that. And so it's almost, you have to put yourself in that position of being knowing, tell these people you're ready to receive and the right people will step up and help you out. Absolutely. And just even your comments on that invoke a couple of visceral responses for me. One is that we have to use our ears and our mouth and the ratio in which they're given to us (laughs) that he who talks the most loses. And particularly when we're in front of somebody that, has chewed some of the same dirt, you know, err on the side of being uh, concise always goes a long way. The other thing would be my, my 10 and 12 year old sons would tell me the modern philosopher, philosopher, Florida, the rapper, which says, (laughs) you know, if you want to get paid, you can ask for money. If you want to get paid twice, ask for advice. Right? So ask, say, when you were in a similar position to me, what are some of the things that you did? What were the lessons learned? Asking good open-ended questions that are going to help you have, help them time travel a little bit. And what, what you're hoping for, I, I, what is it, is it just a real candid response? Ultimately, what you get sometimes is the bonus say, you know, you remind me of myself. And, and when I was in your position and people don't, you know, people don't from either side, they don't care what you know until they know that you care. And, and if you're not taking the time and paying them a little homage there, that, that, uh, homage depends on where you, where you're from this country, then they, they, they're not gonna, they're going to just be thinking about whatever meeting is next on their calendar. So one of the things I stress, there's a piece written that you can Google it and find it called naive networking that I recommend to everyone. And a lot of my folks I've sent to have sent it to their college age children as well. When they think about internships, I have half a mind to rewrite it specifically for veterans, but it's pretty close to good enough as is. And it basically just says, you don't want to be stalking somebody on social media before you go meet them. However, you do want to be well-researched so that you know a bit and you're not asking them questions for the information available in the public space. The same is for somebody that's done 280 plus podcasts, um, you know, ask them questions that are meaningful, not, not about, Hey, how do you do a podcast in, in this particular, you know, what, what drove you to do this? What keeps you doing it? Um, get, get, get into the, and, and ask them questions about the why. So yes, I'm suggesting that you go into these interactions and interviews, even if they're informational with a couple good questions and that'll make it feel less static when you're just, when you're having a conversation with somebody. I got audited by the IRS. Yep. For the first time ever, I got audited. Matter of fact, it's still ongoing for the year 2016. 
At first, I was real concerned about my books and all the information that was required by the CPA to get through this audit. Then I remembered I'd started bench bookkeeping a while back. I frantically went into my bench account using the bench app on my phone to see if I'd started using bench before 2016. Huge relief. I'd actually started in 2016, but I'd had bench go backwards to the beginning of the year, so everything was covered. When we were able to immediately provide all the required information to our CPA, he was very impressed with our bookkeeping organization and our records. I just smiled and thought, well, it's not really that I'm very organized or anything. It's because I have bench. (laughs) That's why. So with bench, even an audit from the IRS became no big deal. I will never be without bench. I believe that once you try bench, you won't ever be without them either. So right now, you can get one free month of bench and see for yourself how great they are. Go to veteranonthemove.com slash bench. Check them out there. Sign up. Use them for a month. You'll become a believer. You don't even have to enter a credit card number or anything like that. Just use them for a month, and I, I guarantee you, you won't want to be without them. All right, we're back talking with Anthony DeToto. So before the break, we, we covered a lot about networking and transition and everything. And uh, while we had the recording, the recorder stopped, um, we were, you were telling me uh, about some of your experience with family offices as far as the, the banking industry or investments is, or concern. It's is really fascinating. So tell us what a family office is. Sure. Uh, so a family office is, we think of now, you'll hear a lot about private wealth management and advisory firms that serve ultra high net worth. So depending upon how you delineate it, a family office is a group, a structure that would help a family go through a liquidity event that might be 100x of what they were typically earning in an in annual gross uh, income. And it's really uh, building a set of advisors in and around the investing, the legal, the taxation, the administrative challenges that a family might see. And everybody thinks, wow, I'd love to have that challenge. Well, it's still a challenge and a problem. So having a team of advisors where in in Texas, we'd say, well, it's not our first rodeo. We've been down this path before. We've walked this path with other families. And there's a difference between creating money and then keeping it. It's a very, very different skill set. So I grew up in a very large international brokerage firm in my post-military career. And I, and that was really after it was kind of a circuitous path that led me to what I'm doing. I'd worked in an Inc. 500 company in the public. I worked in an Inc. 500 company, so really fast growth that was sold to a venture firm. And then I went to a large broker and had a private bank. And I did that for seven years. And, and then I went to an independent that had, was founded by two families that built big things that rusted. One started in 1914 and one in 1915, Midwest families. <laughs> and I spent the preponderance of the last 12 years there until coming back to my old bank in the spring in May. And you know, my, my guidance is to really help families think about what is the right platform where once you're post-liquidity event, what are you going to do with that second half of your life? Now that you've created wealth, now what? And how, what is the impact of that wealth on the next generation? And uh, I appreciate you asking me about that because it really has informed the way that I've thought about the advice that we're giving the parents in transition. Yeah, so a family office is essentially helping helping a family that's got a lot of assets, you know, to do the right things with it and not, you know, not let it fall into the wrong hands. Yeah, and the way that I tend to 
I lead those conversations would be, I ask them to self-assess, you know, know thine self. How, how financially literate are you? And then how much can you delegate? And then the third one is the one that's most appropriate for veterans as well. What if there's something that you know that just isn't so? Can I tell you? Do we have enough relationship mm-hmm. that it's the unknown unknowns that really jump up and bite people? Yeah, absolutely. And of course, a lot of people chuckle or laugh or like, oh, I'd love to have that problem like you mentioned. But I mean, if you, if, if you or, or your family or parents or grandparents have built a big a big nest egg and, and a lot of wealth, um, you don't want to just blow it. <laughs> you don't want to mess that up because um, there's probably a lot of other family members that you know, d- depend on that for security and financial support. So I, I met, yeah, it's a great problem to have, but, uh, it's still something that you, that you don't want to take lightly and, and mess up is like the old, uh, the old adage about, Oh, you win, you know, every, the stit- statistics on people that win the uh, lottery, you know, poor down and out people that win the lottery it, within a few years, they're back to being poor and down and out because they want a lot of money, but they're still completely financially illiterate. Absolutely. And I think the other analogy is appropriate. You see the posse that surrounds some of these athletes when they go pro and they're taking advice from the wrong people and putting money in the wrong places. And I spent a lion's share of the time when, when I initially got back into this industry in the Silicon Valley in San Francisco and easy come and easy go. You know, if, if you uh, invest in something for the first time, normally wealth returns to its rightful owners, right? Meaning somebody that's being a little bit more uh, measuring twice and cutting once Mm -hmm. and being careful about what they do. And so I think we're in an age where media channels are abundant and advice and the freemium model is prevalent. And you have to be very careful about who you take advice from because free advice can sometimes be way more expensive than you thought. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, the other analogy, if you take all the money in the world and evenly distribute it to every human being on the earth, within a year or two, all the money would be back in the same, you know, same hands of the people that currently have it. So, the right um, owners. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, but yeah, family office, something I hadn't heard of before, but very interesting. So, um, tell us about 1836 veterans. Sure. Uh, so, but the name, first of all, I'll tell you, we were a bunch of millennials sitting around the campus of Rice University in Houston, Texas, asked me three years ago um, how they, how, for some guidance on how they could raise $35,000. And, and I said, so 35 is all you need. What do you need it for? And they needed it to bring a group called Bunker Labs down to Houston. And I said, all right, 35, let's see, 35 oh, why don't we call it 1836 to pay homage to the year in which Texas went independent? And nobody seemed to disagree. <laughs> um, and so we chose that as a way to create some, and then we added the veterans part to make sure everybody understood it was focused on veterans. And we put up a website and our goal with it really was to raise that $35,000. But, and we presumed that would take us a little bit. Well, it only took us about a week and a half and we didn't have to build the PowerPoint deck. And I just asked some friends and, and other veteran, veteran empathizers, some of whom were patriots, didn't serve like you in the Marines or me in the Army. And they said, look, if you're doing it, and I put five grand in of non-dilutive capital, so no strings on this. We're just putting this in place so we can get this group called Bunker 
that we understand puts on these interesting kind of shiny object events. We want, we want them in Houston. And there was a, another bank that put in a million five to take them to 15 different cities. And we were city 16, you know, there was no money left to bring them to Houston, but Houston's got the second largest veteran population in the country to LA. And we felt like there was lots of different groups here that were doing good things, but bunker might be a way to unite them under a particular umbrella. So that's the reason that we got formed. And then what has, what has manifested itself is um, once, once we set that up and we built it and they came, there's an event at Rice called the Veteran Business Battle that happens every spring. And we, we reopen the next one on Veterans Day every year. And we've seed funded that. We've seed funded the entrepreneurship conference at West Point. So when I'm saying funding, we're doing the events. We're really a glorified event planner. We want to create collisions in between veterans and veteran spouse business owners and folks that they might run into. When we think about capital, and people have misunderstood this, it was, there was an article written and it was a little bit mischaracterized. When we talk about capital, there's financial capital. We think that's the easy part. If you've got a business that's making money, anybody will want to put money into it, okay, or any prudent person. So we think, if you think about acronyms, us old military types love acronyms. We use the acronym FISH, F-I-S-H. F is the financial, the one we're, we're not doing any part of that. I is the intellectual. I is who should be your co-founder? Who's going to be the guy that's going to punch you in the throat or keep you out of your own way? and not let you do something stupid to give money back to its rightful owners. <laughs> S is social. Who are your clients? Can you do something for 50 cents and sell it for a dollar to somebody product or service wise? And then H human, who, who are your employees going to be? We know very well that it's only small businesses that create jobs in this country. Large companies eat jobs, you know, artificial intelligence, machine learning, eat jobs. Mm. It's the small business owner that I think people think veterans and that's great. I think the small business owner, because it provides us the capital system that allows us all to exist. And as you and I both know, freedom and free, somebody has got to pay for it. And I think that 1836 was really to fill a gap, a particular need at a point in time, uh, given the fact that I've now graduated, matriculated back to a large bank, it's likely that I'm going to bifurcate this. I'm going to split it up and I'll continue to run the nonprofit side and for folks that do want to do that F sort of investing, they can take that and they can pull together people if they like, but I'm going to separate myself from that because now I work at a very large old big bank and uh, I want to stay it within the, in my lane for them, if that makes sense. Sure. So 1836 veterans is, you kind of uh, affectionately dubbed it as a meeting planning organization you're putting events together and creating collisions between veterans and business owners and veteran business owners and mill spouses and those kinds of things, right? That's correct. And so the intent of it is the way we launch it is I'll say, all right, we'll say we'll do 45 minutes at stand up tables where people can come up with a 10 card and they say, Hey, what are you doing? Joe, well, I'd run this veteran podcast and I, I do X and I Y. And then what we do is get everybody together in one room after the first 45 minutes where it's just kind of the milling and mixing and we're very purposeful in the second part. We'll, we'll say, I'll say, you know, all, well, all the entrepreneurs in the room put their hands in the air. And the last event we did, there was about 100 people there. We had 12 people presenting, but probably 25 people fancied themselves as an entrepreneur. They put their hands in the air. I'm like, that's great. Put your hands down. All those of you that are a check writer, meaning you've written a check into an entity in which you are not an operator, please put your hand in the air. And I said, all right, so you 12 that are going to present, you see the people that have written checks to others, right? 
So pay attention to who they are when you're presenting, make good eye contact. And everybody kind of chuckles. And I said, so I think everybody that's ever written a check into an entity in which they were not an operator has put their hands in the air. And what I tend to do, I'm the parent of 10, 12 year old boys. And I'll have one of them in a blue sports coat and a tie and a white shirt. And one of them will push through the crowd and say, Hey, excuse me, but I've been doing some some research on the internet, so I know it's true. And they'll have a little <laughs> phone out in front of them to say, it says right here that a veteran is somebody that's written a check, a check up to and payable their life, at least once in their life, to the United States of America. <laughs> and what that does is it, it, it quiets the room and it gets everybody focused. And and I said, all right, so listen, that little guy in the sports has got a point. Um, what I'd like you to listen for is... Uh, fish. I use the acronym again, and I put a V underneath it. So F for financial, less interested in that, right? You guys need to decide that. Uh, it's a deeper conversation. But I for intellectual, S for social. Uh, so the intellectual, again, as a reminder, is a co-founder, a board member, an advisor in some capacity. The S is social. Who are their clients going to be? And the H is human capital. Who are their employees going to be? So listen, and I'm going to ask each of these young, aspiring entrepreneurs, most of them are young, not all, um, I'm going to ask them to touch on the following things. You know, what is their value proposition? How is it unique? Who do they do it for? Why do they do what they do? You know, what is their, do they have monthly recurring revenue? Um, what is their, what is their minimum value, their, their minimum viable product? You know, what are they doing that's the essence of what their business is? And I'm going to ask them to make some ask on the people side or the intellectual side or the client side. And if you think you might know somebody, please find them afterwards. And so I let each of these 12 folks talk for three minutes and we're done within an hour. And then we do another 30 to 45 minutes of social and we're done. And what I've been told by a bunch of these folks that have participated is either the, you know, the potential investor, a small business owner, a mentor, a protege, or you know, the creator of this business plan is we're using their time far more effectively. You know, they get to tell their story to a, a silent room of you know, 50 to 80 people who left their own devices, all else being equal, would love to give a hand out or a hand up most of the time to a veteran over someone else. And they don't, and they, they feel like that's either their patriotic duty or somebody else helped that to help them at some point in their life. So again, all it is, is creating the right sort of event with the right people in the room. Now the people that come to these events, like what's the ratio, like, uh, What's the ratio of people that are there looking for help, you know, assuming the, the veterans and future entrepreneur types, versus the people that are there looking to help someone? So that's a great question. And what I've done is I've taken advantage of the fact that what often is the issue with a family office is the next generation of that family is trying to figure out what they want to be. Uh, Thomas Jefferson said it, and that Adam Smith, who wrote a piece called The Wealth of Nations, and he wrote a companion piece about money and families, uh, reiterated it. And he said, I was a soldier, so my son could be a farmer, so his son could be a poet. <laughs> we don't have to get too deep into that, but what it means is if you pick an old vo- a different vocation than your old man or your mom, then you're not going to get benchmark against them. And quite often people go into family businesses because they don't have a different alternative. That's not the only reason, right? It can be a really good way to perpetuate a particular legacy at something you're good at. But I would argue in this age of artificial intelligence and franchises and machine learning and uh, other competitors, you know, oftentimes there might be a more efficient way to run that capital. 
And so what they often need is they need good leadership because what we often hear from some of these families that we interface with is, um, well, I'm not really, my son's not ready yet. And you look at him and you say, well, Bob, um, you're 71 years old, you know, so uh, I think you're 50, you know, your 50 year old son, if he's not ready now, when's he ever going to be ready? <laughs> and so a lot of this is they need somebody else that's grittier than them to particularly take on this operating role. So the, the path of entrepreneurship that I always push veterans towards is entrepreneurship by acquisition, right? Is there somebody where they can step in? There's already a PL and they can buy their way into something that's already working versus trying to create it from scratch. I mean, there's, there's always, those are the stories that Hollywood loves, right? These sort of Horatio Algers at, at the end of the day, that's super inefficient with most of the investor capital at one point. It, you know, you only hear about the successes, the failures, there's a graveyard of them that isn't discussed. Oh yeah. Yeah. I think, um, you know, from my own opinion and, you know, knowing people in the veteran space, I think a lot of a lot of us probably shy away from acquiring a business that currently exists. One because oh maybe it's not my brand new unique idea, you know. And but even if you can get past that, it's like well that's going to require a lot of money to just buy a business outright. You know, I'd rather start small and work my way up. So how is it that a veteran a veteran that's really wanting to get into entrepreneurship, he's got the tenacity and everything, and he could he could learn a system that already exists probably much more successfully than starting from scratch. How does he go about raising the capital to buy an existing business? Well, I think it's, let's use that word capital again, right? You're thinking, and I think you're framing it around the financial capital. Yeah. Is, that, is that fair? Sure. Yeah, yeah. So I Money. think if you have a, if you have a treasure trove of the intellectual, social and human capital already, it takes a lot less of the other. Okay. So meaning I, 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 again, I'll go back to this analogy. We're not physically going to hurt anybody, but I'd rather punch them in the proverbial throat and talk them out of it. Hmm. If you haven't been a mentor or protege to somebody where you've worked in a particular vocation for a while, then why should I give you my money? I already paid taxes on for you to experiment with it. Hmm. Right. So I would think that this is a learned trade. I'm one of my roles working for the secretary of the army is to help people land well in what I've called the micro dirty job industries. So electricians, plumbers, HVAC contractors, construction workers, um, we, there's just not enough people. And if, if most folks would pause enough to understand that they can make twice the median household income of $56,000 after two or three years working in those four trades, it, presuming that they're presentable and promotable and trustworthy, mm-hmm. then why wouldn't you consider being what I, I the best I can tell the term entrepreneur. I don't know who created it, but instead of entrepreneur, just put an I-N-T-R-A, meaning you're internal and you're a bit of a change agent within an organization. I think that veterans are great at that, you know, because we've always rolled into XO roles before you do the CO role. Mm -hmm. So you're a good number two. And I think a great way to be a, a good number two is learn from somebody that really is an artist in their vocation. Now, how do you get to the money was the question. So one is you save a little bit. Part of it is you use some seller financing. And, and the third is there's a number of set-asides that are available through the SBA, through some 7A lending, where there are financial institutions that want to help. There's three legs to the SBA stool. People focus on the minority and the woman legs of it more than they do the, the veteran side. 
And so part of the 1836 is just trying to balance that out a bit and say that, look, you need to focus on the ISH in my FISH acronym more than the F. And then once you have those three things, you know, you, you're not going to need as much of the F as you thought you did and take some of the F in the form of, of financial in the form of non-dilutive capital and then credit. Right. So if a bank doesn't want to lend to you, maybe you don't have a business. Maybe that's a lifestyle business or a lifestyle plus, and that should be you and your brother-in-law, but it's not really commercially viable. Mm-hmm. Well, it's interesting. So talk a little bit. We are getting close to the end of our time. Um, I do want to give you a chance for a shout out for 1836 veterans. So if somebody wants to find out more about what 1836 veterans does and, and what you guys are doing, how would they find you? Yeah. So just the, the URL on the web is www.1836veterans.com. And, you know, it may be that we split it at some point to a nonprofit and a for-profit, but um, there's, there's, there'll always be information there. And we're going to build out more of our resource page that there are seven to 10 different groups around the country. They're either run by veterans and they have a preference for veteran investments. Uh, and we'll point them. We'll point anybody that comes to our site to those organizations because there, there, there are pools of capital that are being raised because it's viewed that veterans are gritty and they are thoughtful and they can make good operators with the right set of training and the right set of mentors. Awesome. Well, Anthony, I want to give you the last word. What I usually ask people is, if you're talking to somebody that's still in the military, somewhere in their transition, or just got out recently and they're looking to become an entrepreneur or start their own business, run their own show, what kind of advice would you have for them? I'd start early. I'd use the Soldier for Life and the TAPS uh, programs. There's a a program called uh, the Protégé program um, that's being developed within the Army. Uh, The Department of Labor's got a program for it. You can use your time while you're on terminal leave to take care of that. The other thing, I went down to Fort Bragg and I worked with some tip of the spear operators last year, something they call, um, it's kind of a capstone program for those guys that have been working out on the forward edge of freedom, calling, you know, juggling chainsaws, calling for fire, <laughs> and their pulse doesn't move. They can make coffee. You know, they don't have a shake in their hand. Uh, but they've been high-performance operators, but they're not high-performance family folks. And so I think part of it is making sure you got the house at headquarters six, you know, mom or your husband, whoever's running the household, making sure they're squared away before you move on to this next venture. I think about putting my nose in a book, like what color is your parachute? Um, Because I think it's been written for 30 years about the things you should test. Uh, Matt Lewis has got a new book on transition that you may want to put your nose in as well. I think that can be a good resource for, hey, I'm making this transition. I'm going from wearing this different uniform to maybe a corporate uniform or a polo and a pair of jeans and boots. What should I be thinking about? And, And the other thing is just go back to something I touched on earlier. Know thine self. Um, you know, a lot of veterans think, well, I don't have the connectivity or the imagination, or I'm a rule follower and no organization is going to want me, or they're at the other extreme. And they're like, look, do you see what this whole package is over here on the other end of the phone? I mean, do you want to put a million dollars in this package of awesomeness? And that, you know, the truth is we're someplace in between, right? We can be a great resource if we're engaged with the in and on the right platform, but we still have a fair amount to learn and emphasizing that we've always learned that when we went into the military, we had no experience doing that, but man, are we willing to learn? And we're not here to just 
learn on your dime. We want to have an impact and we'll figure out a way to make that. We'll go a long way in those business conversations and interactions. Awesome. Well, hey, Anthony, definitely dropped some golden nuggets out there for us. I appreciate it. Uh, look forward to uh, 1836 Veterans Future Success and uh, um, you know, look, look forward to seeing what you guys do in the near future. Thanks for your time today and thanks for what you're doing with the podcast to get the word out. You bet. All right. These two veterans or Oscar Mike. Thank you for listening to Veteran on the Move, your pathfinder to freedom. If you like the show, leave us a review on iTunes. Reviews are always greatly appreciated. So until next time, this veteran is Oscar Mike. <laughs>